This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about the interplay of race and the receipt of buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. How's your week going, Sonia? It's going well. I'm a little tired. It's a little late at night that we're recording this, but I'm feeling good. I'm looking forward to a busy addiction clinic tomorrow, and that's always a good thing. How about you? How are you? Good. I actually get to go inpatient tomorrow, so that's always kind of a fun change of pace going from the office to working at the hospital uh, for a week, so I kind of like the the change of pace there. You're a brave man. I'm a little worried about uh, COVID rates starting to go up again. Are you seeing that in the hospital? I haven't yet, although I'm certainly doing more outpatient COVID than I was a, a month ago. So I hope that's not a, an indicator of the winter. Yeah, me too. Like three people with COVID breathed on me today. So hoping that it's not, uh, you know, the beginning of a trend. So what's going on in the news this week with addiction medicine for you? Well, I did see a somewhat depressing news item, um, which was that opioids are now the leading cause of poisonings of children under five mostly from, of course, accidental overdose. So small children, babies, and toddlers getting their hands on opioids that would be in the house. Um, It came from a new paper in the Journal of Pediatrics. And it made me think not only that I feel sad for these kids, but also that um, safe storage and safe storage recommendations I have for my patients. I've had a bunch of people whose medication has been stolen, lost, destroyed recently. And it's really hard for patients and I always tell people to get a safe, get a lockbox, keep it away from children. But I've, I'm starting to feel like people don't take me seriously. They all say, yeah, they have a safe. And then they're actually not keeping their medication in that safe because it's, you know, it's inconvenient to go into the safe every single day to get it out. But it, stuff is really getting lost. And so I was wondering, what do you tell your patients about safe storage? Is that something you counsel patients on or something you insist on? Yeah, so I'll be honest with you, I could probably do a better job of this if I'm looking in the mirror, honestly. Um, We have a controlled substance agreement that I do go over, and part of it I do emphasize is that, you know, they're responsible for the medication, including who gets into it, so that they can't be leaving it out for children or other people to to have access to. Um, At times, people that do have issues with this, I tell them about getting a lockbox or we used to actually have some lock bags that I could give out uh, in the office, which was really nice. I think we had a grant that gave us a big box of those. Although I think I only got like two or three of those left. I think it's an area where we probably should be doing a better job. It's probably, you know, being self-critical here, an area that I could improve upon. I think I do a good job of it because I have a checklist that I go through at every visit and that's on it. But I don't think my patients are listening to me because you know, they tell me their medicine was all lost. And then I say, well, weren't you keeping it in the safe? And they say, no. So I think it's, I'm saying it, but I'm not necessarily doing a great job either. I have had two patients who had people get into their medication. I had one patient whose child got one of the buprenorphine strips and that was very devastating. The child was fine, but did require medical attention. Um, And I have another patient whose dog got a buprenorphine strip and the dog actually had to receive Narcan um, which fortunately the patient had at home. But both of those episodes were pretty pretty bad. And, you know, you like me, were both mandated reporters. The patient whose child got accidentally took buprenorphine, I had to report that as well to Child Protective Services. And that 
it was devastating to the relationship, you know, between me and the patient. And um, fortunately, the child was fine and the family stayed intact. And in the end, everything worked out okay. But it was a pretty tough situation. Have you ever had anyone whose children or pets or grandmas or anything got into their medication? I don't know why I say grandma. I guess old people, <laughs> old people are just as likely, I guess, to <laughs> want to take meds. I haven't. You know, I get a lot of, I got a lot of it falls down the sink, right? I've never had anyone say their Lipitor falls down the sink, but certainly controlled substances. I do often hear that that, that happens. You know, various reasons people might want extra or might try to get an early refill. And also I think people just care a lot more. I think if my patients dropped their bottle of Lipitor in the toilet, they probably wouldn't even bother to tell me about it. They just wait you know, a month and a half till they get another refill. That's probably valid, actually. <laughs> yeah. I never thought of it that way. Think how annoying it is to call your doctor and have to beg for more Lipitor. That's funny. <laughs> Why bother? <laughs> Can I say, I'm kind of surprised that actually that it's opioids, to be quite frank. I, I would have sworn if you said the number one cause of poisoning in children under five would have been cannabis, especially with kind of how mainstream this has become and, and all of the candy-looking cannabises that are available now. Maybe also, of course, there's a reporting bias. So maybe opioids are more often reported. Possibly. Well, what about you, John? What are you thinking about in addiction news this week? Uh, you know, I, I was reading an article from Filter, and it was uh, basically called uh, a bill launched to ban federal hiring discrimination over cannabis use. I mean, keeping it anonymous, I have a, a friend that actually uh, wanted to be very much in the FBI and uh, cannabis use in college um, during the entrance examination. And part of the uh, security clearance kind of banned him from being able to participate for, I forget how many years he was ineligible to be in the FBI. Um, and it was really kind of devastating to him. And he's a very straight-laced guy, very uh, reliable person. So he was really bummed out about that. And so I know this is an area under a lot of scrutiny. Um, the actual act is called the CURE Act. It's Cannabis Users Restoration of Eligibility Act. And it's been introduced. It has not been approved yet. Um, and it's a bipartisan bill to protect the denial of federal employment or security clearances solely for history of marijuana use. So it states nothing about kind of active use or marijuana misuse or, or a dependence issue here, just history of use. And if this is approved, um, not only would moving forward people that have used cannabis be eligible for federal employment or for higher levels of security clearance, but actually all the federal government agencies would have to put into place a way of reviewing cases dating all the way back to January 1st of 2008, where they did deny possible employers or employees employment opportunities and give them an ability to appeal. So that, that could have really big ramifications. That's a long time period. What do you think about it? I mean, I think it's it's reasonable. At this point, cannabis use is so common and while you can certainly develop cannabis use disorder and using cannabis isn't necessarily going to make you a better FBI agent, it's hard to argue that if you used cannabis recreationally a little bit five years ago, somehow that impacts your ability to work now. It just, it just doesn't. You know, it's a relatively benign substance, certainly no worse than saying that you used to drink alcohol. So I, I just think it's ridiculous that it becomes uh, makes someone ineligible for employment. And I've also read a few articles in the past that indicate that the FBI and other security agencies, especially ones that need a lot of sort of computer scientists and technical people, really actually have trouble hiring. They can't find enough computer programmers and data analysts and uh, security people who have never used marijuana. 
and it makes hiring very difficult and they actually can't get some of the best people because of that. So hopefully this will actually improve the workforce as well in our, you know, in our federal government. So I think it's a good idea. I think the biggest challenge will be, you know, reviewing cases back to 2008. I'm not sure what is it, what that means. Like, do they have to now offer jobs to those potential employees because they were discriminated against against this kind of cannabis use? Or are they going onto a waiting list for future jobs? I mean, I guess, what are they going to do with that information? I think what will also be interesting is how it plays out in other employment situations. Again, not to violate anyone's privacy, so staying real general, but I know some people who did not get desired employment because of past cannabis use in other settings. And I wonder, you know, how is this going to play out? Are are various employers going to have to drop their policies against, you know, marijuana use as a condition, you know, saying that you've never used marijuana or even don't use marijuana in your free time as a condition for employment? Yeah, kind of unrelated to this. uh, You know, interestingly, I I just saw a Facebook post and physician community network about someone that had to provide a hair sample as a newly employed physician. Um, it was anonymous, but they, they wanted to know what the ramifications of, of not complying was or just rescinding the job at that point. It's not an uncommon thing. And you wonder how, like, how does this kind of play out for, for people in different professions, especially kind of these government employees, also physicians, people at higher level jobs. Is it really kind of just to discriminate? I'm not answering that question, but it's just an interesting thought. We'll have to see. It's an evolving area, as they say. So tell us about the article this week. I'm really excited to present this article. It covers a few different interests of mine. You know, it's about buprenorphine. It's about racial disparities in the receipt of buprenorphine. Um, It's just really great. And it was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I definitely jump on any addiction medicine research that's high quality enough for that journal. And I'm always happy when I see the New England Journal supporting addiction research. So the title of this paper is Racial Inequality in Receipt of Medications for Opioid Use Disorder. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, May 2023. So first, some background. In 2022, 105,263 Americans died from drug overdose, most of those people from opioids. So just a massive number of people died from drug overdose in 2022. We have seen the death rate level off a little bit in 2022. You know, it had been rising every year. And 2022, it leveled off, you know, right in the middle of 2023 right now. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. But the overall death rate seemed to level off. But the death rate among Black Americans accelerated. And it's been going up compared to white Americans. So by 2020, the rate of overdose death among Black Americans exceeded the rate among whites. And it's increased even more since then in the last two and a half years. We also have seen rates of death among Hispanic people increasing dramatically in the last two to three years. So just to be specific, in 2021, which is the last year that we have data on this, the death rate among Blacks was 33.5 per 100,000 person years. Death rate for opioid overdose, 33.5 per 100,000 person years. And among whites, it was 28.4 per 100,000 person years. Just a lot more. There is some good news, however, when you're thinking about opioid deaths and overdose deaths, and that's that there's a treatment and there's things that can prevent death from opioid use disorder, and that's buprenorphine. It's a medication that's effective. The number needed to treat is between two and four to get patients to stop using illicit opioids, and the number needed to treat is 53 for one year to save someone's life. So there's an effective treatment. Um, However, a lot of studies have shown significant racial disparities in the receipt of this treatment. So blacks tend to receive buprenorphine at much lower rates than whites do, even with similar background characteristics and similar severity of disease. 
that's some background. And then I was kind of motivated to read this article as well because, you know, I have two buprenorphine clinics and one of them is in the city of York, Pennsylvania, which is at, you know, St. Max's Mothership Hospital is my clinic, is at our outpatient, you know, an outpatient office near our hospital. And York City, where we live, is 25% black. However, in my clinic, which is pretty large, only 4% of the patients in that clinic are black. So I've been very interested in why and who receives treatment at my clinic compared to the population of our city overall. And I hope that reading the article in depth and learning a little bit more about this would help inform me about this question and maybe about what's going on in my own personal clinic. Is there some kind of bias? Is there some way that it's set up that makes it better for people who are white, Hispanic? I have a lot of Hispanic patients in my clinic and less attractive option for patients who are black. So that's the motivation for me reading this article. So I'm going to start with the clinical question. Are there racial and ethnic differences in the receipt of medication for opioid use disorder among Medicare beneficiaries with disability after a serious opioid use disorder-related medical event? So who's in this study? The population is a random sample of Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries due to disability. So these are people, as we sometimes say, on disability, age greater than 18, and they had to have had an index event indicating opioid use disorder. So index events included an overdose, a hospitalization for a drug-related illness, or an inpatient addiction treatment stay. So something really bad happened to you caused by your opioid use disorder. There is no question that you have opioid use disorder at this point. The study was done in 2016 to 2019. They excluded anyone who was receiving chronic prescribed opioids and anyone at the end of life. The demographics in this study, the average age was 51. They were 47% female, 88.6 were low income. So as we know, patients who are on disability often are quite impoverished. Disability payments don't really let you live a very luxurious life. They had on average nine additional medical problems. 18% of them were on buprenorphine at baseline, and almost 38% were receiving a benzodiazepine. And I just want to say, like, come on, people. Benzodiazepines in patients who have known opioid use disorder, not a great idea. So the study was done pre-COVID, which I think is useful to know. And also, this is a very high-risk population. So people who have had an opioid use disorder index event like this, one in four overdoses occurs in this population. So it's a population with a very high need for treatment. The exposure that they were looking at was race, being either black or Hispanic race. And the comparison was to white race. So they compared the two, actually the three races, black, white, and Hispanic. The outcome that they looked at among these people was in the 180 days, so six months after the index event, Patients, did they get medication for opiate use disorder? And they looked at buprenorphine, naltrexone, and then naloxone, which would be like an overdose antidote if you were to have that. Did they get high-risk medications like opioid analgesics or benzodiazepines? How much medical service did they use overall? So like what was the access like? How many doctor visits did they have in those six months after their opioid use disorder index event? And what were the differences in outcomes according to race an ethnic group. I do want to point out one thing is that when they talk about receipt of treatment or medications for opioid use disorder, methadone was not included in this study. 
and methadone is considered the most or one of the most effective treatments for opioid use disorder, but it wasn't included in the Medicare claims data before 2020. So this study, because it looked at a Medicare claims database, didn't include any information about methadone. So some of these patients could have been on methadone and that data wasn't captured in this study. Just to summarize again, are there racial or ethnic differences in the receipt of medications for opioid use disorder among Medicare beneficiaries with disability after a serious opioid use disorder-related medical event? So, John, what do you think of the clinical question? You know, I think that it's uh, something that certainly is a lot of focus now, kind of racial disparities, kind of in all health. I, just looking at the kind of the demographic part that was kind of brought up, I feel like that this just shows you a little bit, at least I feel like we're time traveling a bit from where we've been to now. Like, so this is 2016 to 2019. This is not that long ago. Um, I think that like just looking at the number of patients on buprenorphine in this trial, in this subgroup, the number of people receiving benzodiazepines, the, the, the fact that kind of like we're talking about naloxone prescriptions, these are all relatively kind of standardized that know, to decrease benzos, to increase access to buprenorphine. Naloxone is pretty standard, especially with the contact these patients are having with the health system, even if it's a hospitalization. I think it, it is interesting, just kind of the baseline stuff just reflects like a difference, I think, to where the world is today. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think the population of Medicare beneficiaries on disability makes a difference, though. These are people with a lot of chronic problems and maybe kind of more fragile health. And maybe their doctors are less likely to make changes than they would be, you know, otherwise, like the guy who has six heart attacks and is really kind of hanging on by a thread. Is that really the guy you're going to take away his like 20 years of benzodiazepines or are you just going to let him continue it because the harm might outweigh the benefits compared to, say, a 26 year old person who has no underlying medical problems and you can't even really think why they're on all these different prescriptions? So I think the group here with a lot of medical problems might influence the prescribing patterns. But you're right. Like at this point, we're not really using naltrexone very much for opiate use disorder. We're not supposed to be prescribing benzodiazepines for people with opiate use disorder. We're using more buprenorphine, although there's still pretty low rates of buprenorphine use among patients with opiate use disorder. But you're right. This is like 2016 was nine years ago now. So a little bit of a time travel. I understand those points, but even like receipt of naloxone, like what they're defined as an index event here, like overdose, hospitalization for a drug-related illness, inpatient addiction treatment. I think it's almost kind of like standard of care that at least today that in any one of those settings, almost any doctor, hospitalist, ED physician, addiction and treatment, I think would probably at least give you naloxone. I don't know, just, just thought that it's a little bit different than the way things are currently. No, I totally agree. Like not to jump ahead, but between 14 and 22% of people were given naloxone after this index event, which is super low. And now you're right. If you like sneeze in the direction of an addiction treatment person, you get naloxone. You know, my patients are sick of me asking about it. They're like, yes, yes, I have naloxone in my purse, in my car, in my medicine cabinet. Yes, I have it. Yeah, standards have changed. I think even since this article, the data was collected for this article. Let's talk about validity. This article had some strengths and I'm going to go through them. One is that racial health disparities have been found in other studies. And so this is not a totally new concept. It's very plausible and it's been seen in other studies. It was very large. This paper included 23,370 people and they had 25,904 opiate use disorder related index events. So a ton of data. 
of those events, about 15% occurred among Black patients and about 8% among Hispanics and the remaining 77% among white patients. So there were enough events in each group to draw some general conclusions, which is helpful. I thought 180 days is enough time to establish care and get treatment after the index opiate use disorder event. So it was done. I think it was long enough. They measured race and clinical outcomes the same way in all ethnic groups. I thought the outcomes were clinically relevant. They looked at receipt of medications, but they also looked at some other clinical outcomes, including overdoses and deaths in all groups. They controlled the model for age, sex, chronic condition count, type of index events, and state of residency, so location. They did multiple sensitivity analyses to try and account for different possible confounders, including the potential for methadone use, and the results were basically the same in the sensitivity analyses. And finally, funding, I thought unlikely to cause bias. It was funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is NIDA, and the National Institute on Aging, because that's who works with Medicare. And I thought that funding was unlikely to bias the results. So those are some strengths of the trial. It has some weaknesses as well. One big weakness, and I don't even know if it's a weakness, it's just something to know when you're thinking about this data, is that all three racial groups were really different at baseline prior to their index event. And the index events themselves were also very different between the groups. So when we're talking about index events, Black people were more likely to have an overdose as their index event, whereas white and Hispanic people were more likely to have an IV drug use-related hospitalization like for endocarditis or cellulitis. The Black and Hispanic people were more likely to be low income than the white people. And most importantly, white people were much more likely to have received prior treatment for opiate use disorder with buprenorphine or naltrexone than the Black and Hispanic people. So at baseline, white people were receiving much more treatment than the other two ethnic groups. It was not a blinded study, of course. It was a prospective database study. It didn't include methadone, which was a huge problem um, because I think a lot of people would have received methadone rather than buprenorphine, especially if they live in urban areas because methadone clinics are often concentrated in urban areas. You know, you have to go to your methadone clinic daily for a lot of time. A lot of people don't have good transportation And so they work better in settings where people live pretty close. You can walk there or you can quick stop on your way to work. Like if you have to drive 45 minutes to a methadone clinic, it becomes unworkable. So they tend to be concentrated in urban areas. And that's also where our Black patients tend to live. And so methadone clinics are disproportionately placed in areas where Black Americans live and they're more accessible to those people, whereas buprenorphine clinics tend to be more in private offices small clinics, doctor offices, and and more accessible to patients who have like a private doctor or their own doctor. And that tends to be white people. So not including methadone, I think, I won't say it biases the results. It just, we have an incomplete picture of what's really going on with people and what treatment they're receiving. The population is a little limited. It's this very sort of poor, ill, middle-aged population. It may not reflect exactly population overall of people with opioid use disorder, And finally, it's based on claims data, which itself depends on provider coding. And provider coding can be inaccurate, as we know. And provider coding can also be racially biased. I can't really cite just offhand specific data about this, but, you know, there's a lot of discretion in how you choose to describe what's going on with a patient. So just an example, if a patient comes into the emergency room with intractable opioid-induced constipation from illicit fentanyl use, You could code that visit as constipation as the problem or opioid-induced constipation or opioid use disorder or fentanyl use disorder 
for opioid poisoning. You could even call it an overdose because the patient took too much and has a complication. So you could call it any one of those things. And what people choose to call it could be biased based on their perception of the patient. This kind of claims data may be a little bit inaccurate. But I thought overall, it was definitely a valid trial. What did you think about the validity, John? Yeah, I, I think kind of like um, one point I thought about it is, that, you know, you talk about kind of weaknesses about kind of baseline characteristics being different. But, you know, this kind of is like an in vivo study, right? And I think kind of differences in baseline characteristics, I think is, is contributory to this issue. So I don't think that necessarily that, you know, we can't use this information to kind of understand the problem a little bit better, because I, I think it kind of reflects reality, unfortunately. Right. You'd almost say there's no point in doing a study where you're comparing white Americans and black Americans and you make every single thing the same except for the color of their skin between the two groups. That's not what people's experience are. So that would almost be thought of as an invalid study. You know, it lets you isolate the effect of skin color itself, but it doesn't apply to people who have lived their whole life with, you know, their race affecting what kind of medical treatment they receive. So I think you're right. It much more reflects the reality of what's going on, but it makes it hard to isolate race itself if you think of it as just the color of someone's skin and not, I would call it, racialized life experience that includes the past before the study and the future after the study. Yeah, I think I agree with what you're saying. And I think a lot of people have kind of changed like race to exactly what you're saying, this kind of racialized life experience, like what you have going on and and what other things are contributing here? Because I think a lot of those things are that tracks relatively with what a lot of the other data shows. Black and Hispanics typically have a lower socioeconomic status or, or in terms of resources compared to kind of white patients in many of these other trials we've seen. White patients have more access to treatment or they've had more exposure to treatment. It kind of reflects biases in their ability to receive those services. And you know, the only one I haven't seen before is the the overdose presentation versus the hospitalization, but that's probably also a, a bias and your white patients and Hispanic patients are presenting to care at a lower severity level than, than black patients. So let's talk about the results. The results came in like several giant tables of numbers, which are hard to share in audio format. So I'm going to pull out kind of the main highlights that I was most interested in. So just to remind everybody what our actual question is that we're trying to answer. Are there racial and ethnic differences in the receipt of medications for opiate use disorder among Medicare beneficiaries with disability after a serious opioid use disorder-related medical event? So the answer is yes. Yes, there are racial and ethnic differences. The first big difference between Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, and white Americans in the primary outcome, which was the number who received buprenorphine or naltrexone for opiate use disorder, and remember, this is after an opioid index event, like an overdose. So it is obvious that these people need help. So what percent received buprenorphine? 13% of the Black patients, 18% of the Hispanic patients, and 23% of the white patients received buprenorphine after their index medical event. That's a 10% difference. That's huge. But what was really interesting to me is that the entire difference was driven by the difference in receipt of medication prior to the index event. So after the index event, every single group got a small boost of what percent of patients got medications. All of the groups rose by about 3%. And they were so different at baseline, that's why they ended up different after their index event. So before the index event, 9% of Black people, 16% of Hispanic people, and 20% of white people in the study were on buprenorphine. 
all those groups rose by 3 to 4% after their index event. So it really is the baseline characteristics that drove the difference in the primary outcome, not necessarily how they were treated after the index event. The next thing that I thought was interesting was the number of ambulatory medical visits. So there was a difference in the number of ambulatory visits between blacks and whites and Hispanics and whites, although this difference wasn't huge. On average, black patients had about 6.6 doctor visits, Hispanic patients about 6.7 doctor visits, so those were the same. And then white patients had one more, about 7.6 doctor visits in the six months after their index event. So White patients had slightly more access to care or used care more. But even the Black and Hispanic patients, I mean, six doctor visits, seven doctor visits in six months after a major life-threatening event, and only 12% or 13% of those patients ended up on buprenorphine, that's, in my mind, kind of criminal. I mean, I guess you could say no one wanted the buprenorphine, and maybe they were all on methadone already. So it's a little hard to know if they were receiving treatment of some kind. but these patients all had access, both Blacks, Whites, and Hispanics, all had significant access to medical care. And despite that, a minority of them received gold standard treatment or really any treatment, it seems like, for their opiate use disorder. Finally, there was a very high number of patients receiving opioid analgesics, so like prescribed opioids for pain and benzodiazepines after their index events. So to be specific, about 22 to 23% of patients in all groups received a prescription for opioid pain medicine after an index event. And benzodiazepine prescribing was really high too. 37% of the white patients received a prescription of benzodiazepine compared to 23% of the black patients and 29% of the Hispanic patients. So those groups were all different. And the numbers were really high, almost shockingly high. I don't know why the white patients would have received more benzodiazepines than the black and Hispanic patients. I don't know if it's cultural or they just have more access to sort of medical care and private doctors who are willing to do that kind of prescribing. That really struck me, especially since now, like you were saying, that combination is considered really unsafe. You know, there's a big black box warning saying that buprenorphine or any opioid and benzodiazepines together are unsafe and we try not to use that combination. So the fact that 37% of the white patients received a benzodiazepine prescription after an opiate use disorder event was kind of shocking to me. Does that shocking to you? Does that number seem high? I mean, th- that seems high to me. The, the number of people receiving opioid prescription afterwards seems high. And, you know, the, the one thing I thought that was surprising is that, like, you know, the three groups had relatively similar receipt of opioid prescriptions after this index event. Keep in mind, like, you know, the white patients were presenting more for a medical issue where the, you know, black patients were presenting for an overdose. It seems like that's kind of interesting to me because I could see where you have endocarditis, you have a painful surgery, that there's a, a period of time where it would be appropriate with opioid use disorder to prescribe that. But it's interesting that the the black patients presenting for overdose receive them at same rates. Yeah. And I don't know why. It's hard to know from these big sort of claims data study. So how am I going to use these results? You know, this is a more of a descriptive study. It doesn't necessarily translate to one-on-one action with patients. So these patients in this study, they're not necessarily the same as the patients I work with day to day. My patients, very few of them are on disability. Um, My patients tend to be younger, less sick than the patients in this study. 
I thought the outcomes were very relevant, you know, whether or not you got treatment with buprenorphine or naltrexone, but there's just this huge gap where methadone is not included. Um, and then finally, and this isn't really from the study, but just a general thing I have been thinking or, you know, read about or thought about when I was reading this article is that there are significant contributors to health inequality, not just individual bias, but there's structural racism, stigma against treatment, the geographic distribution of which services are available where, health insurance coverage differences, significant differences in incarceration rates, and there's racial segregation within healthcare. And so I feel like my awareness of racial disparity in care will definitely help me provide services equally to all my patients. It helps me be a little more aware of the reasons that my Black patients might not get the needed care that I offer. Why aren't they coming for care? So the more I know about this, the more I can do to try to make my services available and accessible to everybody. And also helps me and you and all of you guys listening to advocate for policies to address health disparities within our own health system and in the wider community. So I was really glad I read this article. That doesn't necessarily change what I do one-on-one when I'm in an exam room with a patient, but makes me be more aware of some of the challenges my patients might be facing. So I definitely think I'll be using it and thinking about it moving forward. Yeah, I definitely think this is something that like increasing awareness that all of us have about certainly everyone should have access to the same medical treatments, right? I think that it's, it's sad how just in general, like looking at this study versus kind of a time machine to now, you would think that those index events, all of those would be in, in a perfect world, a naloxone prescription, a bridge into their buprenorphine or methadone clinic. I know some of that data wasn't captured, but they would be receiving some evidence-based treatment for um, opioid use disorder. You would think that you would mitigate kind of risk further in addition to the naloxone that kind of targeting the benzodiazepine prescriptions, which could be contributing to some of these outcomes. So I think in that regard, seeing how low these rates are to what I think they would be today, I think that makes me kind of optimistic about the future. Maybe that's a that's a weird way of saying that, but I don't know. I think it's true. I think it's true. And I think, you know, we can't assume that everybody wants treatment, that everybody wants what we're offering. You know, plenty of people want to do stuff on their own. But you and I both know enough people who are pretty miserable suffering from opioid use disorder who, for one reason or another, aren't able to really get the treatment they need. You know, there's some barrier that that they can't overcome, um, even though they would like to be free from the opiate use disorder. So I think the more we know, the better. Yeah, it is amazing. You're right. Just kind of offering a service doesn't necessarily agree, mean that the person is going to take you up on it. I, I, I see this when I do hospital consults, people with very severe presentations for opioid-related uh, injection injuries or health complications. And you would think that they're there in the hospital kind of at a low that most patients would be in a very receptive state, but there is a large percentage that they're just not there yet. And it's hard They end up leaving AMA or they don't end up kind of staying with treatment, at least not this time and with a poor outcome in a lot of cases. Well, and that's where, you know, not to deviate from our assigned topic tonight, but that's where harm reduction really comes in. And this is really informed my understanding of what harm reduction means. It really means working with people who don't want to quit using drugs, but still helping them live the best life that they can, have the best health that they can, even without insisting that they stop using drugs or even assuming that they're going to stop using drugs so that we can continue to work with these people and this population, even if they're still going to use drugs. And we're happy to help them stop, but we're also happy to help them if they don't want to stop. Yeah. Great article, Sonia. Thanks. 
So we got a comment on Twitter from uh, Dr. Jane Lipschitz. I'm sorry if I pronounced her name wrong. It's regarding episode 26 and our call for an addiction medicine choosing wisely list. She said, quote, terrific podcast, including the choosing wisely portion. I was answering alongside and saying the same things you were. Thank you for listening and kind of giving us that feedback. I think that was actually a, an interesting reflection, I thought, when we had that discussion. Yeah. If, if anybody else thinks of any like things we do for no reason or things that should be on the addiction medicine choosing wisely list, please send it to us. We'll uh, pull together all of the ideas we receive at some point for a future episode and share them with everybody. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identity. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.